So you know, uh, Jesus never tells anyone to worship him. Uh, in fact, in all the gospels, uh, Jesus tells people to follow him 22 times, but he never once says, uh, and worship me. It's really interesting, in none of the Gospels, uh, Jesus doesn't set up like satellite campuses. He doesn't uh, create worshiping communities and say, this is how you are to worship. Follow this uh, liturgy and then you'll be worshiping me. Jesus just doesn't tell people to worship him. That doesn't mean they don't, they do. Uh, his disciples worship him uh, when they're in a boat and the sea gets really rocky and there's a storm. They fall at his feet and the text says, and they worshiped him. Uh, there was a woman who had been bleeding for like 10 years. She was a woman of means and she exhausted all of those means uh, in pursuit of her health. And so uh, she literally worships Jesus and crawls to him, breaking through just to touch the hem of his cloak. Oh, people worship Jesus all the time, not because he told them to. Which begs the question, uh, why worship? Why are you here? Are you here uh, because this is what you do on Sundays, right? Uh, you think, I got this really long streak, 55 years. If I break it now, what will the 55 years previous be? Are you here um, because maybe one of your grandchildren is being baptized and you feel like if you weren't here, you would be bad? There you are, right there on the front pew. I just can't not say hi. This is what you need to know. This is how I show love and affection. We really hope you'll come back. Are you here because um, you actually love the person that you're sitting next to and this matters a lot to them? And so you're here maybe for their benefit, but not so much your own? Why are you here? Um, here's uh, what we know. Jesus doesn't tell people to worship him, but Jesus does spend a lot of time in the Gospels worshiping, though it never says, and Jesus worshiped. Uh, periodically, Jesus would withdraw and go away. And I'm going to make the generous assumption that Jesus would go away to pray, to listen, to breathe, to reflect, to worship. So we're going to uh, turn to some stories from the Bible that are sort of in the greatest hits. And I want you to pay attention not so much to the content of these stories, but to the regularity and the rhythm by which Jesus withdraws and worships. Because I think it might indicate why we worship. It may be an invitation of why we're here. So we're going to turn to the 14th chapter of the Gospel of Matthew. And I would invite you to listen for the word of the Lord to all of us this day. At that time, Herod, the ruler, Herod heard reports about Jesus, and he said to his servants, uh, this is John the Baptist. He's been raised from the dead, and for this reason, these powers are at work in him. For this is what you need to know. Herald, Herod, uh, not Herald, Herod had arrested John long ago and bound him, and he put him in prison on account of Herodias, who was his brother, his brother Philip's wife, because John had been telling Herod, it is not lawful for you to have her. It is not lawful for you, Herod, to have your brother's wife. Though Herod wanted to put him to death, he feared the crowd because they regarded him as a prophet. But when Herod's birthday came, the daughter of Herodias danced before the company and she pleased Herod. 
She pleased Herod so much that he promised on oath to grant her whatever she might ask. And prompted by her mother, she said, Give me the head of John the Baptist here on a platter. And the king was grieved, Herod was grieved, yet out of regard for his own oaths and for the guest, he commanded the head of John the Baptist to be given. And he sent and had John beheaded in the prison. And John the Baptist's head was brought on a platter and given to the girl who brought it to her mother. He was beheaded as a party trick because the king wanted his brother's wife. This is in the Bible and this is about marriage. Just saying. (laughs) And then the disciples His disciples came and took the body and buried it, and then they went and told Jesus. Now, when Jesus heard this, he withdrew from there in a boat to a deserted place by himself. But when the crowds heard it, they followed him on foot from the towns. When Jesus went ashore, he saw a great crowd, and he had compassion for them and cured their sick. When it was evening, the disciples came to him and said, Jesus, this is a deserted place, and the hour is now late. Send the crowds away so that they may go into the villages and buy food for themselves. And Jesus said to them, they need not go away. You give them something to eat. They replied, we have nothing here but five loaves and two fishes. And he said, bring them here to me. And then he ordered the crowds to sit down on the grass, taking the five loaves and the two fish. He looked up to heaven and he blessed and broke the loaves and he gave them to the disciples and the disciples then gave them to the crowds and all all ate and were filled. And they took up what was left over of the broken pieces, 12 baskets full. And those who ate were about 5,000 men, not including the women and the children. And immediately Jesus made the disciples get into the boat and go on ahead to the other side while he dismissed the crowds. And after Jesus had dismissed the crowds, Jesus went up the mountain by himself to pray. When evening came, he was there alone. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's make the generous assumption just for a second that uh, John the Baptist and Jesus, who were cousins, were actually part of a family that spoke to one another. And we're going to make the generous assumption that when John the Baptist is beheaded as a party trick to the king, to Herod, that Jesus is sad. We're going to make the generous assumption that if someone in our family was uh, beheaded as a party trick to someone in power that we would have some feelings about that. We would probably be upset, we would be sad, we would be angered, we would probably be grief-stricken. So we're gonna make the generous assumption that Jesus is all of those things when the disciples tell him that John the Baptist's head just got brought in on a platter. And we're gonna make the generous assumption that it is in Jesus's grief that he goes out into a boat by himself, not to fish, but to seek solace to have some quiet, to sort out what is going on in this crazy life, in this crazy world, in this crazy news that I've just been given. Maybe Jesus went out in the boat because what else do you do when you receive news like that? And we're going to make the generous assumption for Jesus that he was depleted. And so he turned to the source of his identity. He turned to the one in which he found his story. And that source 
filled him up, if not just that much. So that when the sun came up and uh, 5,000 men apparently were there and they wanted a sermon from Jesus, he had something to give them. And he had enough to give them that he taught them all day. And when the sun was going down, the disciples came to Jesus and said, you got to send them away. The hour is now late. Send them to get some food. And Jesus has enough even within him to say to the disciples, I think we have more to give. And we're going to make the generous assumption that after Jesus not only taught those people, but fed those people, he had nothing else to give. So he withdraws to a mountain to be alone, to pray, to breathe, to reflect. I don't know, to worship. If you come here today because you're so depleted that you are looking to be reminded that your life is greater than your own, have you come here today because your battery says under 20% and you're going into low battery mode right now? Are you here because you need to be reminded that there's more to this life than what you give to everybody else? I don't know, but to answer questions like that, we need to pray. So let us pray. Remind us, O oh God, that you hover here. You hover in this very sanctuary, just as you hovered over the waters of creation. So we ask, O oh God, that you would reach across the ages and breathe new life into these ancient words. And that you would breathe new life into the meditations of all of our hearts. That all would be acceptable and pleasing to you, O oh God. For you are our rock, and you are our Redeemer. Amen. I know, I've never seen a minister do a sermon like this either. <laughs> but my hope is, in um, a short period of time, you'll know why I'm sitting in this chair giving this sermon. This is what you need to know. Uh, my roommate, freshman year of college, uh, was from Mobile, Alabama, and his name was Cersei Allen Wilcoxon III. Baptism families, you thought you had some family names. His parents had the good sense not to turn him out to the playground in kindergarten with a name like Cersei. So they uh, dreamed up a nickname for him. They went all the way from Cersei Allen Wilcoxon III to Buzz. I think it would have been easier to send him out as Cersei myself. This is what you need to know. Cersei Buzz was the greatest roommate that anybody could have freshman year of college. I went to a small liberal arts school uh, in the South, and I reached a crisis point second semester freshman year. And that crisis was I had uh, s somehow mislocated my blue blazer at a party one night. And so the um, promise that I made to my mom that I was going to go to at least one church service spring semester, I didn't have my blue blazer for. So I went to Buzz and I said, Buzz, can I borrow your blue blazer? I, I promised my mom I was going to go to church this Sunday. And he said, yeah, you can borrow my blue blazer, but you got to make me a couple promises. And I said, Buzz, I'll promise you anything. What do you want me to promise? He said, you have to promise that you're not going to lose 
or mess up my churching clothes. And I looked at him and I said, churching clothes? He goes, you know, Matthew, I got hunting clothes, I got fishing clothes, I got golfing clothes, and these are my churching clothes. It's a dad joke, I know, but it proves the point. Many of us uh, this morning woke up, went into our closets, and uh, put on our churching clothes. Many of us woke up this morning and we wrestled our children into their churching clothes. But the reality is, uh, you haven't come to church. You haven't come to church today. You've come to worship. I know, that's like a really small distinction. Does it really matter? I think it does. You've come to worship. I've heard people uh, say that worship should comfort the afflicted and afflict the comfortable. I've heard people say the best worship is when worship comforts the afflicted and afflicts the comfortable. And I got to tell you, I love that saying. I do, but I think it misses the point. It misses the point because it draws our focus away from God and it makes us the center of what worship is. We are either the afflicted or we are the comfortable. It doesn't matter. Worship is about us and what worship should do to us. And it can be easy to think that way, right? We're Americans. I mean, if you go to Starbucks and they don't get your order right, what do you do? You tell them and they say, we will make it right this time. It's easy for us to come to worship and to think that worship is supposed to be about us. God, you're supposed to speak directly through me. And you get like an hour to do it, by the way, Lord. Don't worry, I'll find your toes in a minute. I mean, how often have you walked out of worship and you ask uh, the people who were here at 930 worship, was the sermon any good this week? And they say, I don't know, it was really long, but I think there's probably some nuggets of truth in there for you. Or how many times have you uh, walked into worship and uh, it's like the pastor who's doing the prayers of the people read your email or your text messages all week and you think, oh my goodness, Lord, what are you trying to say to me? Or you show up. It's the first time that you've been in the sanctuary in a really long time and you hear an intro like that from Ryan Anthony and you are transported back in time to 20 years ago when that song was played at your mama's or your grandmother's memorial service. And you think, Lord, what are you doing? Conversely, have you ever uh, gone to a church, went to worship and thought, what in the world was that? I mean, the sermon had nothing to do with the scripture lesson. I'm not really sure what uh, the minister was praying for. It just sounded like a bunch of hot topic buzzwords to me. Why would anyone want to go to that church if worship was like that? I hope you've never come to Preston Hollow Presbyterian Church, walked out and thought that about worship here. It's easy, right? It's tempting. It's tempting to judge worship based on what we perceive that we get out of it. It's easy to think that worship is about us, especially when we think we have come to worship. But we have to remember uh, that worship is not a noun. It's not a noun. Worship is actually a verb. Literally, worship means this. Worship is intentionally giving worth or value 
through words or actions. Worship is intentionally giving worth or value through words or actions. Quite literally, worship is revealing what holds the most worth to us. Worship is a worth-ship. So it begs the question, does it not? What do you most give your worth to? I don't know, if we um, step back for just a second and we looked at our words and our actions, what would they reveal that we give our worth to? What would our words and actions say that we value the most? Uh, What is worship has been shaped by uh, uh, a Danish philosopher from the mid-1800s named Soren Kierkegaard. Uh, He wrote this tiny little book, um, and Kierkegaard only lived to be 42 years old, but he wrote this little book called Purity of Heart is to Will One Thing, and many theologians have summarized that entire book to mean this, the audience of one. Because uh, Kierkegaard used a metaphor in that book as worship being like the theater and us going to the theater. And this is what Kierkegaard says. In the theater, the play is staged before an audience who are called theater goers. But at the devotional address, and what he means by that is in worship, God is present In the most earnest sense, God is the critical theater goer who looks on to see how the lines are spoken and how the lines are received. Kierkegaard is talking about the audience of one. So imagine with me just for a second, um, if we all understood that in the sanctuary today, right now, and even at 9.30, and even our 8.15 service, that we were all on stage, and that we were not the audience, but we are all the actors. All of us, even those up front in black robes. If we're all on stage, and we're all the actors, and there is the audience of one singular God, How then would that change our worship? I mean, if we're all on stage, right? And God is our audience. How would it change the way that we uh, prayed? How would it change uh, what you actually prayed when you were in this space? I don't know. Maybe that would be a little uncomfortable for you. You don't want God that close. You don't want God as the audience of one. Thank you very much, Jesus. Just tell me the Lord's Prayer. I'll recite that, keep you at arm's length, and you don't mess with my family or my life. Thanks. How about it change the way that we uh, sang? I know sometimes the hymns, they can be a little dreary, or they can be uh, words that we don't always know or use anymore. Do we think, you know what, this song doesn't really speak to me, so I'll just stand here and pretend like I sing, but I don't actually sing. Who are you singing to? And why are you singing at all? How would it change the way I preach? Can I just say it's a lot more fun to pick on you? (laughs) 
Can I tell you a secret? You really want to build somebody's ego up, you know what you should do to them? You should give them a really fancy black robe. You should give them a, a, a stole that they can change to mark the seasons of time. And then you know what you should give them with that robe and a stole? A degree that they can hang in a public space with the title on top of it. Master of Divinity. What a joke. What an oxymoron. Master of the divine? Give me a break. If the God of the universe were sitting in one chair and we were all on stage, how would that change my preaching? How would it change uh, what we pray for? How would it change the words that we use to convey to the God of the universe the most intimate concerns of our lives? How would it change the most heartbreaking stories that we know of our friends and of the world? And how would we convey that to God? Oh, if we were all on stage and God was the only person in the audience, how would we go about our uh, baptisms and communion? I mean, I get it. We ask you to say some things from time to time, and sometimes we ask you to hold the, the cup and eat the bread, and that can be really confusing. But do we remember what's actually happening? There are children whose eyes have not developed enough for them to actually recognize what their parents look like at this stage. And we are going to make promises on behalf of those children and those families that the God of the universe loves those children long before they even know what their parents look like, know what love is, or even can utter God's name. Oh, how would we change our worship and baptism if the God to whom we were promising were sitting right here? And if we're all actors on the stage and we're not the uh, audience? How would that change um, when we came to worship and how we came to worship? I mean, for instance, if we're actors on a stage, let's say you're in the cast of Hamilton, um, or the cast of Come From Away, still not there, okay. The cast of Les Mis, would you show up five minutes after curtain? Would you sneak out 10 minutes before the play was over even though not all the lines had been spoken? I, okay, it's Dallas. <laughs> <laughs> Let's say you played for the Cowboys. And the game goes into overtime. Do you walk over to the coach and go, you know what coach, we really should have been able to wrap this up in four quarters. My contract says I got to play every game. I'm not giving you extra time. You really should be able to wrap this up in two and a half hours if you've called better plays. Would you walk out? I know I'm messing with you. But I think the question is valid. How would our worship change if God were the only audience? I think it would change everything. 
I think it would change everything. I think it would change how we worship. I also think it would change how we live, and this is why. Um, a year ago, I was in this space, and a mentor and friend of mine, Steve Eason, uh, had come to Dallas to work with me on my preaching. It was a Tuesday afternoon, and uh, all of you were at work and nobody was in here. And so we walked in, we didn't even turn on the lights. Steve went uh, behind the chancel area where the choir is and he pulled out a chair. There's all kinds of stuff back there. He pulled out a chair and he put it right here in the chancel and he looked at me and he said, Matthew, audience of one, if God, the living God, were sitting in this chancel this week, how would that change the way you walked into this space? How would it change the way you prepared for a sermon? And what would you preach? And I looked at Steve and I said, Steve, if uh, the God of the universe were sitting in this chair when I walked into this chancel, I don't think I'd be able to utter a word. And Steve said, knowing you, that's saying a lot. <laughs> I said, I don't think I would uh, be able to utter a word because what do you say to the one who knit you together in your mother's womb, who has promised to be with you in every season of life. I said, Steve, I don't know what I would say, but I think I would become really clear on this point, that the audience of one is not limited to our worship. That worship is a mere dress rehearsal for the rest of our lives. It's an invitation for us to understand that our story is part of a larger story. It's an invitation for us to live as though we are not the center of the universe. And let's be really clear, I often think that I am the center of the universe I try to create. It comes with the robe. It's an invitation to recognize that what we put our value and our worth in the most is not our houses and not our cars and not our jobs and dare I say not even our families or our vacations, but it's the one who gives us life. That's why I worship, because I need to get together with a whole room full of people every single Sunday to remember that we're on this journey together and that there's a different way to live. I need to be reminded that that's the invitation of every moment of every day for me and for you, because there's really only an audience of one. And I need to remember that the God of the universe is worth it all. Is worth it all. So why do you worship? Why are you here? How would you answer God? If it was only God in this room with you. Let us pray. God, we are grateful. We are so grateful for the gift of life and for the gift of breath and for your love that knows no boundaries. We pray that this hour of worship will lead us more fully into grace, into love and life, and that we would reflect those to the world. For we pray in Christ's holy name. Amen.